Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM, Progress After Dark. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything. I'm coming live from New York City. Chris Hauselt, our executive producer from South Carolina. The mighty Thea Harper running this thing from the Brooklyn Bureau. We've got a great guest lineup tonight. We're going to ask you to stay up late because you're not going to want to miss any of it. Jonathan Price will be with us tonight. Um, The legendary actor, star of, well, where do you begin? I mean, I think Terry Gilliam's Brazil is maybe the best English language movie of the 80s. Of course, so many great films from artsy British fair like Carrington. And of course, over the years, he's been in everything from, oh, my God, uh, an Oscar nomination for Best Actor for the Two Popes opposite Anthony Hopkins. Um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. So much Broadway work. He won a Tony for Miss Saigon. A lot of young people know Sir Jonathan Price best for playing the High Sparrow on Game of Thrones. He now plays Prince Philip in the new season of The Crown, which is quite fun. He's beautiful in it. And uh, it was really a thrill to get one of my all-time favorite actors here in the room. You're not going to want to miss it. He's a perfect gentleman. He's, he's about 75 now. And wow, is he smart. And we have a lot to get to. Taking your calls, 866-997-4748. Let's do a show. Louis Armstrong is one of the most beloved figures in 20th century culture. He changed music. He changed improvisation. He changed what jazz meant. He changed what celebrity meant. The first black movie performer to ever have his name above the movie's title. And during his life, he was not universally loved. He was a threat to the racist establishment. The government tried to put him away for cannabis, tried to put him away on gun charges. And of course, he was scorned by some of his African-American peers and frequently accused of not doing enough or being present enough in the civil rights movement. This was a black man born less than 40 years after slavery ended, given his first formal music training in the Colored Waifs Home for Boys in New Orleans, someone who endured incredible racism and had celebrity on par with Frank Sinatra. He's always been a contradictory figure and misunderstood, reviled by some, revered by many, a man who had to navigate his duality in a spotlight for most of his life. But turns out Louis Armstrong owned a reel-to-reel machine, which was pretty advanced technology at the time. And living in Queens, he would tape conversations with his friends and record his own thoughts. And these tapes, not heard for 40 years, 
are now heard in an essential documentary by our next guest. Sasha Jenkins has done some great films documenting hip-hop and funk culture, uh, including Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men, and of course, Bitchin', The Sound and Fury of Rick James. Now, half a century after Louis Armstrong's death, he has made a new documentary about him. It's called Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. It's available on Apple TV. It is a great pleasure to welcome Sasha Jenkins. Hello. Hello, happy to be here. Your, your your little preamble just there's really nothing more for me to say. You broke it down pretty nicely. Well, honestly, this is the movie that I think we've all been waiting for. I mean, there's two Louis Armstrongs, right? There's the pop culture icon we grow up with that our moms and dads loved, and then there's the the radical artist that music fans discover. You know, you, you have Hello Dolly and you have St. James Infirmary Blues. Yeah, and and then there's the black man, right? The black right man who had to make it in America somehow and juggling all of these personalities to get where he wanted to go. So, yeah, I mean, he's, to me, he's indicative of what's great about the tapes is you hear, when I first heard the tapes, I was blown away because you have this perception of who Louis Armstrong is. And then when you hear him on the tapes, it's like, yo, he's just a regular guy with yeah. feelings and jokes and dark humor and all these things. But when you hear him on those tapes, you realize that he was a human being and it gives gets you closer to trying to understand or piece together what he must have gone through to get to where he got to. And I love that you're the one who made this film. You know, you with your uh, career of making excellent documentaries of hip hop culture and that you took this project on. I I'm really curious, how did this come to be? I know that you grew up a hip hop kid in New York. Was Louis Armstrong always around? Was he, Was your family a fan of his during your formative years? Well, my grand my grandparents played the music in the house, um, but I got a call from the nice people at Imagine Entertainment, and um, you know I didn't know much about Armstrong, and I did the, and I started doing the research, and I was blown away. But you mentioned Wu Tang, you mentioned Rick James, and now Armstrong. What I've discovered, it's all the same story. Essentially, it's you know black music in America is essentially a reaction to and a reflection of the environment, and. RZA and Rick James and Louis Armstrong all had rough and tumble beginnings, you know, uh, uh, jail, uh, gun charges. You know, RZA was on the, you know, before Wu-Tang broke, he's facing a major gun charge. That's right. Um, and if that gun charge happened, there probably wouldn't have been a Wu-Tang Clan. So to me, although I've spent a lot of time in the world of hip hop, when you're talking black music, it's all pretty much coming from the same place. Yeah. So it was very familiar, very familiar ground for me. I love that you actually, to play the voice of Armstrong in the film in some scenes, you had Nas do his voice. I, I take that as both a great honor to Mr. Armstrong and a way of informing the audience of the, the groundbreaking stature of the artist. Did you go into this project with a sense of connecting the dots between Louis Armstrong and hip hop? Well, Nas is a friend, and, and I was telling him about the film, and he said, did you know that Wonderful World is one of my favorite songs? And in that moment, I said, man, you've got to be the voice of Armstrong. I mean, his Nas's father is a musician, and um, he grew up with that kind of music in his house, and he was a fan, and he has such a distinct voice, such a recognizable voice, iconic voice, so... And, and, you know, growing up in the same neighborhood, essentially, as Nas and, you know, learning about Armstrong, Armstrong reminded me about, uh, he reminded me of a lot of people I grew up with who were 
funny and creative and smart, but just didn't have the social capital or just didn't make it out. Yeah. But there's always someone in the hood who makes it out. And in my neighborhood, Nas was our Louis Armstrong. He made it out and made an impact. So for all those reasons, it just came together in a way that seemingly turned out pretty okay. I love that you take on how Louis Armstrong did address racism, how he did address civil rights. He didn't like to talk about it very much in public. I remember seeing a clip on Dick Cavett years ago where he, he spoke really painfully about it, and that clip's included in the movie. Why do you think he felt that the best he could do for the civil rights movement at the time was donate money rather than lend his celebrity? Well, he was, you know, he couldn't, he didn't feel comfortable going out there and march and marching because, hey, I mean, he's well into middle age at this, at this point. And his thing was he contributed financially. And coming from where he came from, he's just thinking about being able to work because, yeah. No matter how famous he was, when you're when you're black of a certain stature, no matter how famous you are, you always think you could you could go back to ground zero at any moment. Mm -hmm. So he probably thought if he got hit wrapped in the mouth with a billy club, he'd go back to ground zero. He'd have no way of making a living. He'd have no way of contributing to whatever causes. Yeah. So his philosophy is I you know, I make my contributions through, you know, my money, through my finances. But he didn't wake up one day saying, I want to be a civil rights activist. <laughs> he woke up saying, I want to be a musician. And of course, by default, being the only in that situation, of course, people are going to be looking to you for guidance, looking to you to speak out because there aren't, there, who else is going to do it? So that's exactly. an immense amount of pressure. But he didn't sign up for that. But of course, he's a human being with feelings, and he felt the way, and he he spoke out when he did. I mean, he did uh, very powerfully call out President Eisenhower during what was going on in Arkansas. Yeah, the desegregation mess down there. He was fed up with it and felt like Eisenhower wasn't doing enough, and basically said, "Listen, man, if you go down there and deal with it, I'll, I'll even go with you. If you're willing to do that, I will go hand in hand with you to deal with it." And um, you know, he got criticized for that. And yet these tapes, you know, to me, I, I thought I had a good idea of Louis Armstrong and his life. And I've, I've grown up watching interviews with him. I've always found him to be one of the most fascinating artists America's produced. But nothing prepared me for the monologue he shares in these tapes and the dialogues he has with his friends. It was really powerful to hear him talk about racism, to talk about the racist things that fans would say to him, you know, to hear him talking about playing in hotels where they wouldn't allow him to rent a room. There's there's a devastating story of when he met um, he was doing a USO tour and met a sailor, I think, who walked up and shook his hand and insulted him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was and he also said that, you know, it's so funny how there's all this racism and white folks seemingly don't like black people, but there's always one black person that they just loved to death. And he was, for many, that one black person that they loved to death. And so that sort of duality and that, you know, that kind of, you know, living your life that way must have been a, a crazy challenge. But just because so many white folks liked him didn't take away the sting of the racism that he felt every day yeah. in one way or another. I mean, the, the sailor said to him, you know, I, I, I don't like Negroes, 
but you you're the one I'm crazy about. And and Lewis right. just said, I admire your goddamn sincerity, like the candor and and the 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 wistful humor he has about these devastating experiences. And the tapes are 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 so dramatic. And also to hear him talking about how it made him feel when young people called him an Uncle Tom in the sixties. I I mean. He says, when the fuck have I ever Uncle Tom? There's something about the way that he, he says it that just speaks to, on the one level, his his pain, and on the other, other level, his acceptance of it all. Well, when you hear that, when the fuck have I ever Uncle Tom, you say to yourself, well, when did he ever Uncle Tom? You know, right? when did he, when did he? And you can't really find an instance. I mean, okay, he's singing to a horse in a movie, right? I don't know that white people were singing to horses in movies. It's not the most flattering thing, but that's where we were at that time. This is these were the roles black people were getting. So if he if he, what if Armstrong said, "I'm not going to sing to the horse," he might not have gotten the gig, right? You might not yeah. have seen him again. So I mean, you've got to look at people where they where they're at, where they come from, and where they are in the moment of living and how they deal with what's being thrown at them. And again, I can't imagine having the sort of spiritual jujitsu skills that he had to yes. navigate the world that he was in. Do you think a lot of it, sir, was, was generational? I've, I've heard Bob Dylan talk about how people grew up in the 60s hearing Hello, Dolly, but you never heard the Hot Fives and Sevens. It just wasn't played on the radio. This is pre-internet. You had to seek out that kind of music if you wanted to find it. And to many, as you document in the film, especially, uh, you know, folks in the Black Panthers felt that he represented a, a vaudevillian time that didn't have the relevance. I think you make the case that his celebrity, his artistry, was him making the case and was him being relevant. Well, when he you know, was getting booked in these, you know, fancy hotels, et cetera. And they wanted him to play there. He said, okay, I'll play there, but you know, I've got to be able to stay there. So at some point, you know, he started to have the ability to stay at the places that, that he played at, but that act in and of itself opened the door for more people who look like him to stay at these places. So again, he didn't wake up saying, I want to be a civil rights leader or activist. But there are things that he did that quite naturally fit into those buckets. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. My guest is Sasha Jenkins. I can only imagine what it was like for you 
to have access to these 40 years of tapes. And, and I never knew he had a reel to reel in his house in Queens. I'm, I'm really curious. What was the experience like for you as you began listening to these often deeply personal recordings? I mean, we, we, we had a great archival team, so we had to divide and conquer because this is so much stuff. Um, and everyone was tasked with bringing the best to the table. But it's just really revealing when you hear even his wife, Lucille's was one of my favorite parts. It's not necessarily in the film, but you hear them having a conversation and you see Lucille in the film. She's super elegant and quote unquote articulate and smart. But when she's behind the scenes with Lewis, she's, you know, her voice is different and she's talking differently and expressing herself differently. And to me, that just represents the code switching that most African-Americans have to do exactly. to get a certain level of success in America. If she would have been in Rome speaking the way she did behind the scenes with Lewis, she would have been looked down upon. Um, so there's just so many life lessons baked in that speak directly to the Black experience that tells you that so many things have not changed at all. As a matter of fact, it feels like in many regards, we're going backwards. That's why I think this film is a, a real important anti-racism document. And the fact that it happens to have great music and, and really powerful narrative only underscores it. I mean, this whole notion that somehow this man who, who changed popular music, who changed what hitting a high note meant, and I love the way you go into the detail of his impact on jazz, but that there could be because he smiled a lot in his job he would smile and he loved playing and you can tell he has joy with the art but somehow for many that translated into him being passive well admittedly there wasn't a, a lot to smile about but you can't live your life i mean that's the lesson you can't live your life walking around with your black and blues right you've got to play through it and he played through it and didn't let it hold him down and that's just such a powerful lesson for any generation at any time, for any human being to, to stay on your mission and not let anyone knock you off your square is such a powerful message. What surprised you the most as you went through these tapes and began to get deeper into the man's life and, and into his music as well? I mean, I love how for people who are just raised on What a Wonderful World if they watch this movie because of that pop song alone, they're going to get such a musical education. Yeah. I mean, he's just, I just was really struck by his, to me, a sense of humor is a sign of intelligence. And again, the example you gave of him speaking with the serviceman who told him, I don't like Negroes, but I'm sure crazy about you. And he just says, I admire your, your, uh, your honesty. Um, his, his level of intelligence was just so, impressive and there's different kinds of intelligence he has musical intelligence he has general intelligence but you know he was on uh in the film he's on a show on in the film he's on a, on a talk show talking about some advice that a like a local pimp gave him when he left new orleans and the advice was you know make sure you've got a white man up there that says you're my n-word and so he says it on the show but you can't see that sitting next to him is tony randall of odd couple fame. Yeah, yeah. And Tony Randall is like completely squirming, like, oh, I can't believe this guy's saying that. But mm. in that conversation, he says, the guy who told me this wasn't the most elegant person, right? So he's acknowledging that what he's about to say is not easy language. He understands exactly what he's saying and he's putting it out there 
for people to understand that this is what he had to do and think about why he has to do that. That's what's amazing. What I mean, he, please. this is what he's doing. And so that that sophistication is so subtle, but so powerful. Yeah, to see him having to navigate those waters and, and do this, I've, I've heard you call it an emotional and spiritual jujitsu, you know, to, to be able to to be able to be such a, a trailblazer at his craft and in the music. But what you've done here, I mean, this is like having a Louis Armstrong podcast of him just talking about everything in his life. It really makes me view the man and the artist in a completely different way. And I was so struck by obviously this archival film you found of uh, the late actor Ozzie Davis, where he talks about how for a long time he was one of the people who mocked Armstrong for smiling and for what his persona was perceived to be until one day he, he met Armstrong on a movie set. Could you, could you unpack that story for me a bit and why you thought it was important to include in the feature? Yeah, he's, he was working on a film with Armstrong and, you know, he went to have a quiet moment himself and then caught Armstrong in a quiet moment. And he sort of observed him quietly. And then Armstrong realized that he was being watched by Davis and he kind of snapped out of it and kind of, snapped back into this sort of satchmo persona and davis in that moment says you know what i it was in that moment i realized who he was he's like he's my father my uncle me you know all of us who have had to sort of make concessions or do this code switching in order to to survive and he and it was in that moment uh he's pretty much said that he gained his he armstrong gained davis's respect and he didn't feel the same way. He never felt that way about him. He never felt negatively about him again. Yeah. And because to he, never, that, he never laughed at him again. Yeah. So when we found that, I was like, wow, this is the thesis of the film. This is this is like, so I tell people, I feel like Armstrong was co-director on this because there's just so many things that he collected, so many things that were relevant to him that he interact with or made people feel a particular way that we had so many great so much great material to draw from. So I he had a heavy, he had heavy, heavy presence on the film. I, I want to thank you for making the film. I can't wait to show it to my son uh, when he's old enough to appreciate the guy he knows in Hello, Dolly. I'm curious, Mr. Jenkins, what's next for you? What's your next project looking like? I have a film about Ed Sullivan that's coming soon. Wow. And, uh, you know, Ed Sullivan, when I was first approached, I was like, okay, I, you know, I need to learn more about this. I don't want to make a film about a white savior. But turns out Ed Sullivan's a blueprint for a white uh, ally. He's an ally. He, you know, put black folks on TV at a time when others didn't mm -hmm. and put them on TV on their own terms, pretty much, for the most part. And um, you know, Sunday nights, it was a big deal for all of America, but a particularly big deal for black Americans. So that's coming soon. I'm also finishing a film about Bismarcky, the rapper who oh passed God. away about a year ago. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see both of those films. It's a pleasure to talk to the one filmmaker who can make movies about Bismarcky and Ed Sullivan at the same time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for making this rich documentary. That's going to change the way everyone looks at this great artist. The film is Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. It's streaming now on Apple TV. Sasha Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. And we'll be right back. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. It would take days to list the memorable roles of Jonathan Price on stage, TV, and screen. Terry Gilliam's Brazil, Glengarry Glenn Ross, his Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning performance in Barbarians at the Gate, Pirates of the Caribbean, Mr. Dark, and Something Wicked This Way Comes, Carrington. God, I love that film. Uh, Mr. Price has played Churchill. He's been a Bond villain, Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes, Juan Perón, Hamlet at the Royal Court. He's done Macbeth, Shrew, and uh, Antony and Cleopatra for the RSC. Played Shylock opposite his own daughter. He has also become one of our greatest actors in musicals. He's played Fagin, Henry Higgins, and his Tony Award-winning performance in the controversial Miss Saigon. More recently... His Oscar-nominated performance is Pope Francis of the Two Popes, the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, but he's now appearing in the new season of The Crown as Prince Philip, a performance filled with yearning and strength and loneliness, opposite Imelda Staunton as the Queen. It's, it's a beautiful performance. Please welcome the former artistic director of the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, Sir Jonathan Price. Hello. Hello. Um, I think I should quit now while I'm ahead, it's, but thanks very much. It's one of the <laughs> hardest intros to a conversation I've ever had to write because there were too many credits I couldn't bear to leave out. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. What is it that makes you say yes to a character at this point, sir? Um, I suppose it's really uh, trying to find something that uh, to not repeat myself, uh, to find something I haven't done before. Um and to find some kind of challenge. Um, Prince Philip was uh, was certainly a challenge for me. It's a, a million miles away from the person I am. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. I think it was easier playing, <laughs> not that I'm closer to Pope Francis, but it was easier to play Pope Francis in a way um, because I... Uh, you know, I appreciated him and I identified with him a lot more. I've, Historically, I'm not uh, a monarchist, uh, and I have a, like many people in Britain, as we're conflicted about in our relationship with the royal family. Indeed, but uh, I think. Well, the other thing was, of course, that uh, for four seasons, it's uh, the Crown has been something that I've uh, watched and admired, enjoyed. Uh, I never expected to when we started watching it. I thought. Um, you know, it's a commitment when you you start watching a, a long series. Uh, watch the first episode purely out of curiosity. It came completely enamoured with Claire Foy's performance, and continued to watch it mainly for her. But then it was, uh, I, I, it was so and continues to be so wonderfully made. 
as an American, I, I've been sucked into the show and yeah. found uh, untold levels of empathy for these characters. And Prince Philip, of course, is very daunting uh, a figure. The the images that the media has portrayed of the man to the mainstream have not always been flattering. And in the beginning of uh, the first episode of the season, there's this wonderful scene featuring you as Philip speaking to a Polish TV news crew at Apollo grounds and all of the awkwardness, all the yearning, all of the mercurial temper and the sincere intentions under the constant scrutiny of a camera on his face at all times. It's almost like we get a sense of the entire character in that one scene. What was your journey like to find empathy for this man? Uh, Well, it's... (sighs) It's a, it's a short journey. It's what I do with most characters, and especially characters that are perceived by the public to be powerful. You know, uh, Shakespeare, kings, princes. You try to, uh, if they're a powerful person, you try to find their weaknesses and their foibles, the things that make them tick and make them uh, behave in the way they do. You know, so it was. You see, for years, um, I, I was six when the coronation took place uh it was three days after my sixth birthday and i remember that my family were one of the few people in the street who uh, we got a television for the current to watch the coronation and uh, there were about two other televisions in the street and i remember lying on the floor in the darkened room because everything had to be completely dark um, <laughs> yes. the blackout curtains from the wartime were put back up oh wow um, this tiny screen and I lay on my stomach with uh, a metal cannon that I'd been given as a birthday present that fired matchsticks and I remember lying on my stomach and as the coronation coach went across the screen <laughs> firing my cannon at the screen uh, so that's sort of um, that's my first uh you know, the realization that I wasn't a, a monarchist. <laughs> Would have, uh, but um, yeah, the, it was so for years. Uh, all we ever saw of the royal family were if you went to the cinema, you saw them on newsreels when they were making their uh, visits abroad. Yes, uh, you saw that public face of them, and then you what you, you read in newspapers. Exactly, because they weren't on television all the time. They weren't on you know what we have now and what became in the 90s so they were very remote figures and none more remote than uh than philip i didn't ever have a great opinion of him um because all we ever saw of him like i say is uh exactly what we were told about in the newspapers he was a grumpy irascible man his acts of kindness didn't really get a lot of print no no not at all um and then you know, you get the script and it's uh, you realize there is this other life that he had and you start doing the research. And um, and the most telling thing for me um, was uh, when I was learning the, the carriage driving yes. sequences. And I went to work with um, this company, they're called the Devil's Horsemen, and they do a lot of, they do all the stunt driving and riding for films. But they, uh, the man who taught me, he worked closely with Prince Philip and he just talked about the other side of Prince Philip. What a, what a great fun he was to be with. Um, very generous spirited. And, uh, you know, the, the script tells you 
that he was a man who was interested in science and the the natural world that he you know the, the World Wildlife Fund he established yes Duke of Edinburgh's award so we, I began to see a much more humane image of the man and uh, and proceeded to try and bring that to the screen really because you know the the sort of the the irascible side of him or whatever and um, his the image of him in the in as state visits and things that takes care of itself you know yes and so what you can bring uh, and what the the crown script gives you the opportunity to do is to as I say to to show the more humane side of him and the you know what he's like at home and that's the joy of it i would imagine i mean especially when playing say uh, a figure like shylock which we, I mean, you know, Shylock can only seem be interesting if he's yeah. portrayed as a sympathetic yeah. figure. Yeah, it's it's absolutely that. And what um, when I did Shylock um, with my daughter playing my daughter Jessica, yes. um, we we wanted to show something of the home life of Shylock again, like Philip, to to show what made him the man he became, and uh, we improvised a scene together my daughter and I and um, it was a very simple scene where she, I'm saying don't walk away from me when I'm talking to you and it, the daughter is like Duh, dad you know the kind of thing um, and uh, why are you always be- behaving this way why can't you do as I tell you you know and uh, but we performed it in Yiddish <laughs> and uh, it was it became very powerful and it was all people got because they couldn't understand what we were saying yes. but they could see the body language that it was a a father who was uh, and it was it was uncomfortable between the father and daughter the father being a widower and you know you saw oh he's a guy who's trying to run the household and she's not right. playing the game so that when she leaves him and goes off with the the christians taking all his money you, you go oh I, I see i see why he's so heartbroken about this and heartbroken about his daughter you see uh that the him and his people uh were living in the ghetto in venice and they were persecuted we, we demonstrated that in the play so you provide all that background to why the man is the man who says he wants a pound of flesh yes and it goes decades of persecution over the top, but it's the audience see why he's become, you know why he's become that man, and um, and at the end we uh, there was you know he's forcibly baptized oh. into the Christian faith, and when we play, well we played it here uh, in New York uh, uh, for a week or so, um, but when we played in the, in the Globe in London, it's where there's a thousand people at your feet, yes, and this ceremony is going on. It was, uh, it was in to be a part of it. Actually, it was incredibly moving. You knew the audience were moved, and uh, they gained a greater understanding of the suffering that the man had gone through. So, cut to Prince Philip. Sure, <laughs> and, uh, but it's true. That's the- what that's what you want to do. You want to you want to, people to understand the man. Uh, otherwise, there's no point in doing. It. If you're just, you know, portraying their lives, you know, the domestic life of a exactly. king and queen, it's not very interesting. Or if you just play him as an unlikable, one-dimensional, yeah, yeah. foppish figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's that sort of humanity is something I think you even bring to a Bond villain. But in in this case, though, um, the physical work you've done 
yeah. on the character is most impressive. And and I, I'd like to ask you a bit about that and what your, your makeup regimen was and how you began going after this very famous man's physicality. Because that's yeah. one of the things that most impressed me that I kept forgetting I was watching you. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because when I saw myself on screen, I didn't recognize myself. Yeah. I, di- I didn't see myself in it, in it there at all. And uh, I've got no makeup on. I've got a, a wig on. But I've got no really? no prosthetics or anything. It's, uh, it's, I don't know. Your whole face seems to change its shape. Yeah, I know. I know. Your eyebrows, but, uh, everything looks different. It's a The eyebrows, well, they're, they're trimmed okay. for our meeting today. But they, <laughs> for Philip, they're a little bush here. I... I People never think it when they look at me because I've got a thin face, but I, I'm quite stocky beneath all the clever dressing. Well, we, we tall gentlemen can pull that yeah, off. Yes. Uh, you are wearing black, I notice. Indeed I am. Yeah. As I, I am almost. Um, but I, I, I lost, uh, I spent about nine months, six months, I lost 15 kilo. Um, and I went to the gym. I had a personal trainer uh, two, three times a week. Uh, working on the posture, um, it was old man's gym. It was, you know, I wasn't running around, but it was about right. uh, stretching and straightening. And because he he's he walks upright, he he still preserves his military background. And there were just small clues. Something he always did from the newsreels. He walks with his hands behind his back. Yes. Um, and also looking, I watched videos and also worked with the movement. Uh, coach briefly she just gave me one thing to do which was to notice how he shook hands with people and it isn't a, a mean uh you know straightforward arm straight out a quick handshake it's a very generous handshake his arm swoops in to take the person's hand and it's it, he does open himself up to the person he's saying hello to um which uh, you know, it's it's shorthand for him. It's a great to detail. say I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm open to you, and it might it makes the 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 receiver feel better. I think the series has been so solid at showing us all the different sides that uh, the public knows of Philip, and then sides we didn't see, and more or less letting the the viewer decide for themselves in the in the second episode, which focuses on Philip's relationship. Uh, with the woman he learns to enjoy carriage riding with. Yeah. Of course, we had all these rumors of an affair at the time. I quite admired how this the episode and your performance both showed Philip's loneliness and happiness at having an actual friend. Yeah. Didn't go there. But then in the same episode, we see Philip making a very empirical argument more than once for why royals should commit adultery. And yeah. yet it seems like completely consistent for the same kindly character we saw the scene before. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, he's um, you, you, you're referring to when he talks to Diana about you can live the life you want. And then to the queen as well. just play within our rules. And then, yeah. and then to the queen later yeah. in the same episode. He, yeah. he, he more or less restates a version of that argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's the, that's, that's the complex man he is and the complex way they lead their lives. Um, the extraordinary thing about the relationship with uh, Penny Romsey is that um, I, I, when I first met Peter Morgan to talk about my playing Prince Philip um, at his house, um, one of the things he, the most salient thing really, was he said, I want to uh, talk about the um, the relationship with uh, Penny Romsey. And um, I was, oh, really? I and I didn't know about it. 
um, and uh, left left the house thinking, do I really want to go down this road? Do I am I really going to start upsetting fifty mm-hmm. percent of the British public? Mm-hmm. Never mind the royal family themselves by exposing this. And then I went on holiday to France, and I thought I'll I'll, I'll just Google, and I got I went on French Google, and the European Google. Pages and pages yeah. of this relationship. Yeah, it has been almost entirely suppressed in Britain. And, you know, it's well known that uh, the royal family and and the government will do deals with the press. We'll give you this exactly. if you don't print this, and uh, that must have happened. It's such and an industry. Who, you know, um, the question is: Did they? Was Diana the? Uh, the trade-off, you know, we'll mm. we'll give you Diana on a plate. Anyway, I was I was just in London the week I get before shot last. For saying that when I get back to London, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Because here's the thing: I think the the appeal of the show. I, I was in London two weeks ago, and and uh, it was still in the the morning for the Queen, and that was where I read that in the UK viewership of the Crown went up eight hundred percent after the Queen's passing, before the season's even premiered. And I think the secret of the show is that it's willing to be messy in the lives of these people. As as an American watching all this, I must say, um, this outcry of some people, the the protest people have had because the show is a drama, when they seem to want a reenactment, is is quite rubbish. I I hope it's been good publicity for the season because I think you've been... nothing but good, yeah. You've been defending it beautifully. Yeah. Well, it's it's very easy to defend because I I believe in what uh, Peter Morgan does, and I believe it's a, it's entertainment, no more or less than that. It's not not a historical tract. I mean, it was easier uh, earlier series because that was its history, its recent history, but it you know it wasn't so present in people's minds. And as we come closer to the nineties. It's it's within living memory, and peop- the people who are making the protests uh, were around in the nineties, mm-hmm. and um, and also that there is a, be- a vested interest in some of the protests that they are people who are close to the crown, of course, and um, they think that, that it's being hurtful. Uh, the most hurtful thing was that his fellow artists who were making these protests who had not seen a, a second of what we are doing. Artists um, we admire very much. Yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting that things have come out now. There's a, the, um, a an equerry and a, a, someone who worked for Diana for 10 years has just written a long article in the Daily Telegraph about how truthful he was there. He knew Diana, how truthful all this is, uh, how the, the way the royal family's portrayal uh, is portrayed in their relationship that to Diana is very accurate. Even to the point of, there's the objection from John Major, the Prime Minister, yes. saying this meeting never happened. Uh, Prince Charles never came to me to discuss his uh, mother abdicating. And uh, the um, this uh, correspondent now is saying, well, this meeting did happen. I know it happened. But it didn't happen with John Major. It happened with another Prime Minister, a different Prime Minister. Ah. So... We're fiddling with the, you know, is the um, the timings or the identities of the people involved, but we're not uh, we're not telling an untruth. Exactly. That, there's know. there's facts and there's truth. Yeah. And what Peter does, he characterizes the people who how they behaved 
uh, to come to make the decisions they made that the public know about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the great Sir Jonathan Price. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. My guest, by the way, is Sir Jonathan Price. To me, I think of when I was a teenager and saw you in Miss Saigon, when you were in the eye of a very different kind of storm then. But it seems a very... Back then, when you played a Vietnamese character and made a lot of headlines, many actors came to your defense. You won the Tony. And it was, to me, a sign of a very healthy society that we're having these vigorous debates about culture and about what artists are trying to say. I I do view it overall as being a positive, despite some of the comments being a bit petty. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask about the Pope? Um, you can. He's he's very well. He's, he's doing you. well. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're. I'm the child of two ex-clergy, a nun and a Franciscan. And yeah. um, in watching you embody Francis, once again, it was the physicality of the performance. Yeah. It, it, it you had the soul, but it, again, it's. I kept forgetting watching the film that it was really you. And the same for Hopkins. I I, I couldn't believe how yeah. he was not playing Anthony Hopkins. He was playing Benedict. Yeah. But. What was the process for you in entering that role and entering that man's world? Because he's someone else who is incredibly misunderstood and, and demonized for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, well, I... Um, you mean Anthony Hopkins? No, I mean... Yes, Anthony <laughs> Hopkins is demonized. demonized. <laughs> you know, Francis, I mean, he's I, very controversial here. It, uh, it, was, it was a slow... It was a trickle from uh, the day he was proclaimed Pope and uh, they every newspaper and everything online printed images of... Pope Francis and me, and uh, even my son. When he, my son called me, I was sent me a text saying, "Daddy, are you the Pope?" And um, we got a call from uh, Buenos Aires that day. Would I uh, portray the Pope in a film? That fortunately never happened. So, but this it went on for about a year. And then when I was asked, there seemed to be an inevitability. If there was going to be a film about Pope Francis, I would be asked to do it. And Which adds even more pressure, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. But it, uh, I don't, once I, I knew who was directing it, Fernando Morales, um, I'd have done anything to work with him. Because uh, City of God is one of my all-time Amazing. favorite films. Amazing. And, and a completely uh, different film in every way yeah, than The Two yeah. Popes. But he did not disappoint. He's a wonderful human being and a great and sympathetic... Uh, he's a director, but he's a collaborator. He he watched what Tony and I were doing, and he would he would just adjust it. He would never 
you know, occasionally you'd say, I want you to be here now cause, uh, because, to get from A to B because I need to make a cut just to keep it filmic, right. as it were. Um, but that script, and um, yeah, it, 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 I knew I wanted to do it. The physicality is, um, we. it was almost the last day of filming, uh, a scene, just a little scene where I... Uh, rise up out of a, a bench in the Sistine Chapel and I walk across what looks as though I'm walking across the camera to walk out of the chapel. And it's a long walk towards almost the end of the film. And it was uh, Fernando, we said, said, cut, and Fernando said, Jonathan, Jonathan, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You have embodied everything to do with Pope Francis. He said, even his walk, even yeah. his walk you have. And I was like, yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah, thanks. But I didn't have the heart to tell him that I walk like Pope Francis anyway. <laughs> He's got a bad hip. I don't I buy got, it. I've no. got a bad knee. I don't buy it. I've All my life, people have said to me, why are you limping? I said, I'm not limping. I walk this way. And uh, But they, to talk about his uh, the, the weaknesses and the foibles of a character. Yes. When I was in uh, Buenos Aires where we started the filming and I... Uh, there was a priest there who was advising us on the protocol and everything. And I went to meet him, to talk to him, and he'd worked uh, for Pope Francis uh, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And I asked him what he thought of him, and he said, uh, we didn't like him. We didn't like him at all. I said, really? You know, there was this man who was universally liked. No, he was, uh, he was very severe. He was very remote, strict, and uh, he said when he was created Pope and we saw him on the balcony on the TV, we didn't recognize him. Why? Because he was smiling. <sighs> and we knew him as the man who never smiled. As Bergoglio. And so, you know, you think, well, what journey has that man gone on to be the, you know, non-smiling person, to be on the balcony, uh, open, smiling, uh, paternal, um, and so that was, you know, part of the process of thinking about him. And also I watched a video of him. Uh, there was a specific video of him being interrogated by his contemporaries about his involvement with the junta. Yes. And he's sitting there in the middle. There's two panels on either side of him of people, of priests. And he's looking like death. He, yeah. He's so, and he's, he's drumming his fingers on the table and that was it was like a, a tell you know in poker that he, that was, he was um demonstrating that he was impatient with his finger he didn't want to be here he didn't deserve to be here and um it, it just showed you something of the steel of the man because he has to be steely to be be doing the job he's doing he has to have an inner core of steel yeah but it's also fascinating I, you mentioned game of thrones yeah I did Game of Thrones before I did uh, Pope Francis. And uh, coincidentally, by the way, it's um, season five of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And it's season five of The Crown. Of the Crown. Uh, you know, if you want but somebody to give your series a lift, <laughs> yeah. round about series five, But I'm all similarities man. end there. I'm because, your man. I mean, I'm, I'm your series five go-to man. <laughs> the High Sparrow, though, is one of the greatest characters in recent fiction to show the danger of organized religion yeah, versus spirituality. I, the, the, the first series I did, um, I 
identified High Sparrow with Pope Francis because ah. he was doing uh, the Pope's work. He was going, work, you know, the, the first things that uh, Francis did was go and w- walk among the poor. That's right. The equipment, washing, washing their feet, you know, feeding them. And there was the High Sparrow uh, doing all that. Yep. And uh, that's, I, I thought this is a character I can play. I hadn't read season six. Ah. I never knew what he was to become. And that was, right. that was too late. When he goes you know, from I was Gandhi contracted to, <laughs> to be that, the, you know, horrible, homophobic, oh, God. But that's what person. made it work. I mean, that because he's introduced as such a kindly person and yeah. as his power amasses, yeah. the real nature of the man comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I began this conversation with a, a lengthy list of many of your credits, and I want to end by asking, have you had the experience in, in, in your films where you knew on set that you were part of something truly special, some enduring piece of high art? Did well, you, would, did you it know it in Brazil? It would just be Brazil, yeah. You knew? Yeah, yeah. I knew before I started it, it was going to be special. I admired Terry, even though I turned him down once for a film. Uh, and every, every, I turned him down for Time Bandits, mm. and uh, I didn't see myself as the whatever he was called. Um, anyway, what the, uh, the supreme, the supreme su- being? Yeah, yes. So um, <laughs> you know, now supreme beings, drop of a hat, I can do them. But then I thought no. Uh, and any time we were in difficulty on the Brazil set, that I was in difficulty physically or whatever, Terry would say, "This is." punishment for your turning me down for time minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, oh, it was a, a joy. It was hard work it, because Terry's not the easiest person to work with because he's not the most organized at the time. But uh, it was always exciting and uh, I was in every day and it was like red bus, you know, you have the saying red buses in London. If you miss one, there's always another one coming in five minutes. And it was like, if a didn't quite get a scene right there'd be another scene coming in a minute and then there was a, a stream of visiting actors you know Bob Hoskins would come in for a few yeah. weeks De Niro. De Niro would turn up for a few weeks Michael Palin would turn up no it was a joy absolute joy and what's wonderful about it I keep directors I work with who are a lot younger than me but they were young when they saw Brazil it was what inspired them yes. in their filmmaking and um it's it's still revered. Young people still are still discovering it. There's a I'm told there's a screening in New York somewhere. Um, this is today's competition uh, to find out whether there's the the 35 mil director's cut. The director's cut is essential. being shown because God knows there've been cuts that no one should see in yeah, the yeah, movie. Yeah. Arguably the greatest English language film of the 1980s and it's amazing how it its influence is like the big bang it's still expanding and I I love the film and then years later I saw it on a big screen and fell in love with it all over yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for you sir? Um beyond season we, 6 well, of the Well we've Crown. got season 6 to which goes to April filming and I'm also involved in a, a really good series called uh, Slow, Slow Horses, Horses which on is Apple. on Apple. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to it, and I could bend your ear talking about the craft all day. Sir Jonathan Price, thank you for letting me thank you to your face for all the great work and for inspiring so many audiences and so many creatives. Thank you very much. Well, that's incredibly kind of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You can see The Crown Season 5 streaming right now on Netflix featuring Jonathan Price as a man who is in arguably the most famous arranged marriage of the 20th and 21st history, and it's just beautiful work. Thank you. Thank you. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.